Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I am doing very well. Uh, today on the show, our guest is Rebecca Blankenship. She is uh, a trans woman who does a ton of stuff across Kentucky. Uh, we, we talked to her first and foremost about all the trans issues that are facing the legislature this year uh, and, you know, kind of her perspective on things and, and, you know, how she's feeling in the midst of all of that. But we actually asked her on there because she has recently become the first elected trans person in Kentucky's history, first openly trans person ever elected to public office in Kentucky. Uh, so, so we talked to her a little bit about that, but also just kind of about the other things that she's doing. She's been in the media a lot. She's been interviewed in a lot of outlets about the history-making election that she won, but she's also Pam Stevenson's communications person in her race for attorney general. She also works on band conversion therapy Kentucky and has for several years. So we just talked to her a lot about a lot about the other things that she was doing. She's a very interesting person. It was very timely to, to have her on this week. Uh, and you know, she's one of my favorite people in Kentucky politics. Jasmine, how did you think it went with Rebecca? I thought it went great. And I, I really enjoyed her talking about meeting with conservatives in Frankfurt and, and talking to people with differing views and, and why they file the bills they file and support these bills that we think are bad and you know i think sometimes we have a tendency to just say like they they hate people who are different it's it's all hate filled and and sometimes that's true um but but sometimes they're i mean they have like deeply held beliefs and and they really believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, And it was really interesting to hear her talking about, about that and having those conversations. Yeah. In the midst of that conversations, one of the things that she said was like, how much progress are you ever going to make? If you just call somebody out for their hate all the time, they're never going to listen to you. Um, And, and so, yeah, I think that that's an amazing perspective. It's like, no matter what you think about what they're doing and, and how convinced you are that they're doing it from a place of hate. If you say that to them, they're just going to ignore you. Um, you know, I would never ask somebody to have that perspective. I never tell, especially tell a trans person to, to feel any specific way about that. But the fact that she's able yeah. to see it that way in the midst of it just really goes to speak, speaks to her as a person and as an organizer. So yeah, a uh, great mm-hmm. person to have on really glad that we talked to her. So definitely stick around to listen to that interview. Lots of stuff happened last week. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling in the abortion case. It's not on the merits. It is on the injunction. Uh, and, and if you need to know what that is, we'll talk to you about what that is as well. So we're going to start off with that. And then Jasmine's got a couple of bills that she uh, has made some notes about, uh, about juvenile justice, one of the biggest issues facing the legislature this year, and about Senate Bill 150, which is that trans uh, bill that really is bad for trans kids. Uh, and, and it managed to pass the Senate. So Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about that as well. So without any further ado, okay, Jasmine, you uh, did this segment back in late November, but we talked about arguments before Kentucky Supreme Court about Kentucky's abortion ban, or, you know, rather not, not not the case on the merits, but about the injunction, which the circuit court level in Louisville in Jefferson County, uh, put an injunction in place and said that abortions could continue. It went to the appellate level. That injunction was overruled. And then the Supreme Court also uh, overruled, like left the appellate level ruling in place. So 
you know, that's the decision about that injunction, uh, and it will remain in place pending a ruling on the merits, which, you know, still has to happen. That still has to make its way through the courts. So it's a long opinion, uh, but the, the main issue brought by the Supreme Court, in their opinion, is third-party standing. Um, so the case was brought by EMW, which is the abortion clinic in Louisville or, or was, and, and the other Kentucky abortion providers. So I think there's a Planned Parenthood in Lexington and maybe another Planned Parenthood in Louisville. And they brought this case on behalf of their patients, but did not name any patients directly. The Supreme Court ruled in overturning this injunction that precedent did not allow for their situation to permit the ability of the clinics to sue on behalf of their patients. So that's third-party standing. Did I do a good job of explaining that, Jasmine? Yeah. All right, good. You're, you're a lawyer, so I assume you probably learned about this at some point in law school. I am not a lawyer, so I learned yeah. about this by looking at uh, it on the Internet. Yeah. yeah, standing is constitutional law, and then third-party standing is, is part of that, and there are limited ex- exceptions to the general rule against third-party standing. Mm-hmm. So the the injunction and, and the bills that are being sued about are the trigger law, which was a bill that was passed, I believe, in 2021, which basically said as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, the uh, you know abortion is banned in Kentucky. That's the trigger law. And also the six-week ban, which I think was – it was passed before that. It was, I think, 20. 19 maybe 2020 i don't know the exact year i'm sorry i probably should have looked that up first anyways those are the two bills that this lawsuit was about so the supreme court ruled that abortion clinics do not even have first party standing to challenge the six-week ban they don't have standing at all to challenge the six-week ban Uh, so the case that we are now going to have wind its way through the courts will be about the the trigger ban itself because the supreme court did rule that abortion clinics did have first party standing to sue about the trigger law. So that is that that is kind of how this works. So, you know, forget the six week ban and just no longer part of the case. There's no standing for the the abortion clinics about the six week ban, but they do have first party standing regarding the trigger law. So that is how the standing situation works for this case. So the decision itself is more than 50 pages uh, of explaining this. It's a substantial decision because it takes the six-week ban off the table. Um, Yeah, in the meantime, the the case about the trigger law is, in fact, now going to head back to Jefferson Circuit Court and will make its way back up the system and land back in the Supreme Court soon enough. Maybe not soon enough, but eventually it will make its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, it, It... it will be ruled on. Jasmine, you tell me this. I, I'm not really sure the answer. It, it goes back to Mitch Perry specifically on the Jefferson Circuit Court. It won't be reassigned because it was him that ruled on the injunction. That's how. That's the the court it's in. So that's he's yeah, the person that's ruled right. on it. And and Mitch Perry was very forceful in writing the injunction. So I think it's highly likely that he's going to rule in favor uh, of the abortion clinics in in the, the court case. Uh, obviously, not nothing's guaranteed until it's on paper. But that's my guess. But the appellate and, and Supreme Court levels are maybe a little bit more complicated, and we'll talk about that for sure. Um, in uh, the wake of the decision being released, predictably, Daniel Cameron was thrilled, and Planned Parenthood, EMW, and the ACLU were upset. You know, they, they all released statements to that effect. Daniel Cameron's like, they they agreed with us. They think we're awesome. This is such great news. And 
the ACLW and uh, the EMW clinic and Planned Parenthood were like, this is a travesty, it's a miscarriage of justice, all of that kind of stuff. So that, that's, that was kind of what happened in the wake of this. The case about the trigger law is, in my opinion, you know, likely to win at the Jefferson Circuit Court level. I just said that. Um, but, you know, the appellate and Supreme Court both ruled against the injunction, but they were both, both levels were very careful to ensure that they made clear that their rulings left the door open to rule, you know, for the abortion clinics in a ruling on the merits. That they, like, they're in the, in the court case, they just say this, this does not... This does not have anything to do with how I would rule on the merits. This does not have anything to do with our opinion about how this court would work on the merits. This is just about the injunction. That, that is written throughout the opinion and a few of the you know, dissents that are agreeing with the central idea in, the, uh, in, in, in this ruling. So, um, okay, so that, that being said, the opinion itself was written by Justice Deborah Hembry Lambert. So Justice Lambert, we, we've talked about about Justice Lambert before, and, and, you know, that's the third district in South Central or Southeast Kentucky, a pretty conservative part of the state, so, you know, it makes sense that that's the, the person who would be writing this. So Justice Justices Conley and Van Meter concurred. Jasmine, Justice Van Meter said that he concurred in result only. Does that just mean he doesn't necessarily agree with the opinion, but he didn't want to write anything else? Is that a good way to phrase that? Um. So concurring in result only means that you agree with the ultimate conclude like holding decision reached but but you may disagree with the reasoning mm -hmm. um and and oftentimes when someone concurs in results only they usually write separately to explain why yeah justice van meter did not write to explain why there were a lot of people yeah sometimes they don't case. and that makes me mad <laughs> there were a lot there were a lot of there's a lot of writing about this case for sure so Justices Bissig and Keller both dissented from the ruling, uh, like they, probably the most forcefully. Um, they they concurred that the clinics did have first party standing for the trigger ban. So it does say like they concurred in part and dissented in part. So they did agree the, uh, on the first party standing part where it held that the the clinics had first party standing to sue about the trigger law. Um, but but they they also thought it should have gone further and that the court should have found that they had third party standing. Uh, and also first party standing for, or maybe not, they, they, they thought that the, the clinic should be able to, to, to have a case about the six-week ban and the trigger ban. So those that's what those two justices thought. And I believe that they would have also put the injunction back in place. Right, yes, 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 yes. That's a, I guess that is a different thing, but yes, that is mm -hmm. what, they, that, what they would have done for sure. So Justice Nickel thought that the ruling didn't go far enough. So it does say that he dissented in part and concurred in part, so he did agree with the part where they said that they do, do not have first-party standing on um, on the six-week ban um, and do not have uh, third-party standing on uh, the trigger ban. But he also thought that they shouldn't have had first-party standing for the, the trigger ban. Um, he, his whole reasoning in his dissension was about pre-enforcement. Uh, you know, there hasn't been actual enforcement of this law yet, so he felt like that, you know, I don't know. I, 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 that was, like, the most frustrating part was his dissent. It was the most forceful part that seemed to be kind of going against this and, you know, 
making a lot of claims about how he was more righteous and stuff. He didn't use the word righteous, but it's just it, it came off like that to me specifically. Um, I don't really know much about Judge Nickel. I talked to him about you. You you, you had a more positive opinion than than I did uh, after after reading that. But that's not hard to do. So. So well, I I hadn't read his dissent, but we talked about Judge Nickel, and my opinion of him was always very high because I felt like on the Court of Appeals, I'm less familiar with him on the Supreme Court because he's only been there a few years, so I haven't seen as many like authored cases by him. Um, but just as as a an appellate judge in in general, I just think he has been. Um, he's usually very reasonable and tries to apply the law. It, it never feels to have like one slant one way or the other. Um, so I, I was pr- surprised that you said he wrote a forceful uh, dissent. So I, I guess he has feelings about about standing. Yeah, I think he definitely has feelings about standing. That's for sure. Um, but we'll get we'll get into a little bit more about him when we talk about uh, when I talk about like what might happen in the future. So the the last person who who wrote about this is um, I'm sorry is Justice Thompson. Uh, he issued a, a dissent that was similar to Justices Bissick and Keller, but he didn't join their dissents. Uh, basically, in in essence, had the same opinion that they did. But his quote is that the court should, quote, should err on the side of finding standing when at all possible so that parties can gain needed review, unquote. Uh, I, I'm, I guess him and, and Judge Nickel probably, like, you know, they, they may have, like, a boxing match or something because it seemed like Judge Nickel didn't think, like, anybody should have standing unless there had been, like, some, some enforcement of the law already. And, yeah, that is, seems to be very much the opposite of what Justice Tom mm-hmm. was saying. Um, so, you know, based on this, you know, we have like three justices who are saying, you know, uh, and, and that might have been the difference, too. I don't know if uh, if if Judge Justice Thompson wanted to put the the uh, the injunction back in place. That might have been a part there. I don't remember exactly if that that but that could have potentially been a difference. So it seems like that there's poten- like two, I think, clear votes for the uh like citing on the side of the abortion uh, clinics, and that would be uh, Justices Bissig and Keller. It seems like that's that's the way it seems to me based on their their opinions. Um, then you kind of have you know Ju- Justice Thompson, who's like also saying you know uh, these people probably have standing, so maybe uh, that. And then those that's three justices maybe. And then you have the other four justices um, who, in in some form or fashion, are are saying. You know, uh, we we should uh, take this injunction away. It was a smart thing to to get rid of the injunction. But all of them were very clear that their ruling was just about the the injunction itself. And even Judge Nickel, Justice Nickel, who I said was, wrote that forceful dissent, he has a quote in in there that says, "Quote: My analysis of these issues is limited to the propriety of the temporary injunction and does not." in any way reflect a final determination on whether the Kentucky Constitution implies a right to abortion, unquote. So so that's kind of saying, like, you know, I I could go the other way on this in a ruling on the merits. So this is likely going to be a very close case, or at least it could go either way in my mind based on everything that we have in, in, in front of us. So, Jasmine, uh, given all the things that I have just said, do you think that that's astute analysis, or do you feel like it's leaning one way or the other? No, I think you're right about that. What what I thought was interesting about the opinion is that there are three women on the Supreme Court and they they had the the one woman who who disagreed with the other to author the opinion. 
Um, and, and the other two are clearly um, on the other side there. And I've I've heard Justice Lambert. I've heard other people call her a wild card. Yeah. Before, um, and she was probably the one that I I couldn't have guessed where she would land on this. And so, um, you know, I don't think that this opinion necessarily says where she might land in a ruling on the merits. Um, but it, it seems she may have a more strict interpretation and her majority opinion relied on some language in Dobbs, which the circuit court had said was dicta about third party standing Um and the circuit court had said, this is dicta. And she was like, no, we have to rely on this. Um, and we agree with it, actually. And so... I, I saw that, but I don't... What What does dicta mean? Dicta is, like, language in an opinion that is... not part of the ultimate holding of the case. Like, it's a remark in an opinion that may be said in passing... But it's not the holding of the case. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. That I guess that that makes sense. Then why that would be weird to say. Um, yeah. So you know, it does seem like she's a bit of a wild card. I mean, I could see this going. I could see this going seven zero in favor of abortion rights for the clinics. I could see this going five two uh, against. Um, I, I think both of those are definitely on the table. Um, or anything in between those. I don't see it going 7-0, I don't think. I would be surprised if Bob Conley voted for it. Yeah, like, I don't know. Or I, Justice Van Meter. Yeah, I, I, yeah. which is unfortunate because, you know, Lexington needs a better Supreme Court justice. Than That's just my opinion. This is my opinion. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, Lexington, Lexington, let's talk. Uh, okay, so, so last thing. The six-week ban is now, like, out of the case. So this is, even if we are get that, you know, uh, unlikely 7-0 ruling for abortion rights, um, the six-week ban will still be in place. So it's likely now, in my opinion, what I see happening is that the ACLU, EMW, and Planned Parenthood and other abortion rights groups are, are going to be looking for a new plaintiff who is a patient in order to sue about that six-week ban. That's tough. Um, having third-party standing would have been a lot easier because you don't have to, like, bother people who can't access abortions and need one to try to get them to be part of a court case but it seems like that that's what's going to be necessary in order to have a court case about the six-week ban so you know that's going to be tough uh i i really commend anyone who steps up to do this that's going to be a very brave thing to do a very uh honorable thing to do and also just the people at the aclu emw aclu emw and planned parenthood are going to be having those conversations that's just really hard but if we want to if we want to you know make some progress on this issue that's what's going to be necessary so that's what's going to have to happen on the six-week ban which is now no longer part of this court case all right, that's all I had to say about the abortion rights uh, ruling. Jasmine, anything else you want to say about that before we move on to the legislature? Um, yeah, I, in, in this case, it also established a lot of precedent about third-party standing, I think, too. Um, the majority opinion talked about how there were only a few Kentucky opinions about third-party standing, and so... We kind of have this rule now 
four limitations on third party standing. And here with the heartbeat bill, they said that they have not shown something that they have to show um, that's now that's Kentucky precedent. They have to show that there's a hindrance or genuine obstacle to their patients um, and challenging the ban on their own behalf. And that, that they didn't show that um, because pregnant patients have brought these types of cases before. So they should be able to do that um, essentially. And, but yeah, that, that will be really, really difficult. Yeah. I think. Um, And then both of the bills challenge were bills passed in 2019. Okay. 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 Well, yeah, that, so, you know, in the future, if third party standing is needed, we have some more precedent in Kentucky, um, yeah, and the, the last thing I guess about that is like the first party standing piece about the, the trigger ban is that, you know, abortion clinics have to have patients in order to th- exist as a business in removing their patients. Right. Yeah. The yeah. first party standing for the clinics with respect to that is the, the economic harm that they would suffer. And that's yeah. good enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's how that's how the first party standing was, was established. Mm-hmm. All right, Jasmine, do you want to talk about juvenile justice or SB 150 first? Um, let's go ahead and talk about Senate Bill 150. All right, let's do it. Uh, so last week we talked about this bill. Uh, Senate Bill 150 is what is being called a parent's rights bill that's sponsored by Max Wise, who is also Kelly Craft's lieutenant governor running mate. And the bill's obviously very anti-LGBTQ, especially anti-trans. Uh, but I think it's really only partly about parents. It's really, it allows teachers um, to misgender students. If that's not how a student identifies, um, it prohibits state education officials from offering guidance about how to approach trans students or pronoun usage, things like that. And it doesn't require educators to out students to their parents if they feel they're at risk for abuse or getting kicked out. And it allows, it does allow conversations about human sexuality. There are some bills that actually nearly banned those conversations, um, but it requires schools to give parents a two weeks, a two week heads up and the option to opt out of such lessons. So, Senate Bill 150 had passed out of committee when we talked last week, but they returned it to committee, I believe the day after we recorded, to add a committee substitute that changed some language in it. Nothing super major. Um, They added language that said that nothing removes the duty to report dependency, abuse, or neglect. And they also excluded college and career services from the definition of mental health care for the purposes of like notifying parents about health services that are provided to a student. So it passed out of the education committee again, um, nine to three, but this time one Republican, Stephen Meredith changed his vote to no. And then just three hours later, the bill was heard on the floor. Um, Karen Berg testified against it. She also filed floor amendments, but those were voted down as out of order um, because of the way things happened with the committee substitute, which yeah, it had to go back to the committee and the, the, the floor amendments were filed onto the original bill 
uh, as it came out of committee. It went back to committee, and so she only basically had those three hours to file any additional four amendments, didn't get them there in time, and so they were therefore out of order. There, there's nothing that really would have stopped Republicans from hearing them, except for probably that they just didn't want to hear them. So, um, you know, it's in their rules that they could do it that way, but they could just, you know, they could just pass a rule that said Democrats can't can't file floor amendments because they're Democrats. And that would basically have the same effect in my opinion. Exactly. But Senator Burr gave, gave a very impassioned speech and most Republicans didn't even look at her as she was speaking. Um, I think Olivia Croft tweeted that David Givens and Shelly Funk Frohmeyer were the only two Republicans that even looked at her during her speech. Chris Hartman from Kentucky Fairness, the Fairness Campaign, also testified against the bill. Uh, but perhaps the more surprising opposition testimony came from a former Republican state representative, Bob Helleringer. And he called the bill pure discrimination and immoral asked why we're singling out trans kids. So um, I think it was it was nice to me that a former Republican representative came and testified against the bill. Yeah, and, and I believe that this Bob Helleringer is from the uh, from Louisville, from like the suburbs mm-hmm. of Louisville. And, and I mean, from just from a political standpoint, it, it, like that's the kind of political change we're seeing where like people who had formerly been Republican or may still be Republican from, from suburban areas of urban of cities um, are maybe a little bit more moderate or progressive on some of these social issues. So, you know, while I think the reason the Republicans are doing this is because they think their base wants it, like there's parts of their base that certainly don't. Uh, I don't think that this ser- this bill serves them nearly as much as they think it does. And I think Bob Hellringer's testimony about it um, is, is evidence to that fact for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, just the bill passed out of committee. Three hours later, it was heard on the floor and a vote was taken. And the bill passed on party lines 29 to 6. Um, And there are photos of Senator Berg sobbing at her desk. And and she's being comforted by um, representatives Pat or no longer representative Patty Minter was there um, and representative Tina Bojanowski. And I also saw a tweet that said like that they could hear just like a, the howl of a cry, like as she was like walked out with friends afterwards. And like, I just can't imagine the pain that, that comes with all of this for her. Yeah. It's, it's hard to talk about, right? And it's just like, yeah, it's just so, it's so callous. Like, it's just so callous. There's no need for this. This is on the heels of the the death of her, her, her child, her son, by suicide. And, and like, they just, they just plowed forward with it for, for, for to help Max Wise become lieutenant governor. I, I like, it, it, it just, it just is, it just is senseless. Yeah. It's cruel. It, like, there's just not enough bad things to say about it and again you know we have that interview uh with rebecca blankenship where she just extends so much grace to the people who who did this um because like that's the only real way in in her opinion and really my opinion that you make progress but it's just so hard to see these people treating karen berg in this way 
to see these people acting so callous towards their their colleague and and to to have any sort of anything besides just animosity towards them um so i don't i don't know it's just yeah i think in this is something that rebecca talked about a lot of these bills come from this like parents fearing they're losing control of their children and and i think that's right i mean we don't just see that with this anti-trans legislation. We see that with a lot of things like um, paranoia about crime. Um, you know, we we can't let our kids do X anymore because of crime and, and all of these things. And and so, I, you know, I think that people like Lindsay Titchener, who in the Senate, who campaigned on these things, I I think this paranoia is like real for them um but to see their own colleague telling them and showing them with her emotions how this is affecting her life how it's affecting children you know i i just can't fathom how how they could be so callous and not even look at her and push this bill through yeah. in one day and it, it just, it's just it was just so heartbreaking, like seeing the photos, reading the articles and tweets about it. It is. It is a panic, and it's not based in reality in the slightest. And also, no. it's just like further further evidence that like there's no way to like the evidence was put out like, hey, this is not a problem. Here is all of the instances of like any time that this would have made a difference, and uh, like this law would have impacted anything and it's just such a small portion of of this and it it, you know, it just didn't seem to make any difference any of the testimony that's been made any of the evidence brought forth about the pain that this is going to cause and like the tiny minuscule and actually non-existent good that will come from from passing something like this too so it's just it's just a tough one so it's it's headed to the house i guess we'll see what they do with it mm-hmm so that's uh, that's SB one fifty, um, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, it dies in the house, and we don't have to talk about it anymore. But I don't see that happening. I think we will likely be talking about this again soon. In the meantime, let's talk a little bit about HB three, Jasmine. That's the juvenile justice bill that's been filed. Actually, I think we're talking about a couple of bills that have been filed around around juvenile justice and how they're moving. Yeah. So uh, the first one we're talking about is the. Republican bill, which is House Bill 3. That's Kevin Bratcher's bill. And we talked at the beginning of the session how we would see a bill like this that would probably be just like his juvenile punishment bill that he filed last year. Um, and it is about the same, um, but it includes some funding as well. So House Bill 3 would require truancy cases to be reported to court when there's no action implemented by a response team within 90 days. Um, and it would require some other things surrounding truancy cases. It basically, they're trying to get a handle on truancy and, and believe that that's part of this like juvenile crime crisis um it it also creates a misdemeanor for parents who fail to cooperate with um 
truancy, diversion, and things like that. It also, and this is the big detention piece of it, it requires children charged with serious felony offenses to be detained pending a detention hearing and be evaluated for treatment. So there's several different felonies included in this. And the way things are now is most children charged with serious felonies, I would say, are detained pending a detention hearing. Um, that's already happening but judges do have the discretion to release them on some form of supervision. And usually if it's a serious, a serious felony, um, the only supervision a judge might consider is home incarceration where they're on the full-time ankle monitor, can't leave the house kind of thing. Um, but this would require detention in those cases. And, and I would say that all serious felony offenses are not created equal um, for example, arson is one of those charges, and I saw an arson case one time of a kids that were like messing around at school and they lit a piece of like um bulletin board construction paper on fire with like a little lighter, and it was put out within. 10 seconds and that got that drew an arson charge and yes under this under this bill that would require them to be held like in a detention facility right that's the way that this would go yes so that seems like a bad idea just that's for me that's i think that that seems like a bad idea yeah and and i think there are also you know even more serious cases than that where a child is charged with some kind of like complicity role that is clearly different than main a main actor's role and yeah. and I, I just think that all serious charges aren't the same and, and judges should still have that discretion mm -hmm. right the bill also provides that confidentiality does not apply in cases um, where a child has been admitted to or adjudicated for a violent felony offense for five years and this new piece of the bill this year, it includes funds for reopening a detention center in Louisville. Kim Moser has filed amendments to the bill, one of which would require DJJ, the Department of Juvenile Justice, to contract with a behavioral health provider and make communications between child and therapist privilege, like they couldn't be used against them in a trial or anything like that. Um, and so immediately what I see from this bill is there isn't really any kind of like treatment piece to it other than when they get detained, they're evaluated for treatment. And I do want to explain what that means because it doesn't mean they're going to receive some great level of care and continued treatment during the, their time in detention. It, when they're evaluated for treatment, it means they're, they're going to have, an assessment for the appropriate level of care that they need. And that level of care might not be as serious as, for example, acute hospitalization or something like that. The evaluation result might be, we recommend an intensive outpatient treatment program. Well, 
That that child can't go get intensive outpatient treatment because they're in detention right now. Or we recommend outpatient counseling. We recommend in-home counseling with the family. Well, they can't go get that right now. They're incarcerated. <laughs> and so it seems to me the bill only just requires that evaluation, but not any kind of um, requirement for services. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, it just the idea of Kevin Bratcher writing a juvenile justice bill um, should not create any hope that there's going to be, you know, a treatment piece included in the bill. Like, you know, we we got I'm surprised he even went in for, you know, reopening the detention center in Louisville. Um, it is. Yeah, I, I, I you know, he believes that violent violence is like innate i guess and that you know children who do things that are violent should go to jail and then go to prison and we should just never look or see them ever again i guess uh it's just i guess it's just like part and parcel of the ideology of the people who push these kind of bills um and it but it is really unfortunate like if we wanted to actually make progress on this like there would be a treatment component there would be an understanding that like these are kids that have needs. They're kids. They're kids. They're not fully formed humans yet. Um, and, and, you know, it's incumbent upon us as society to, to do something about it and get them the help that they need now um, so that they can still make it into productive adulthood later. Like, I don't know. That's Yeah. Seems the, to be what, what I see in this bill. The bill does say, you know, if they're evaluated, an, a child that's eligible shall be provided with that treatment in detention. But a lot of times that treatment doesn't exist in detention. And or it exists in some small form. They might have an outpatient counselor who comes into the facility once every two weeks or something like that, and they need more than that. And so, and and that also, man, I mean, that that's just a different piece of this, right? Where it's like you're almost like setting these kids up to fail. Um, where it's like you know we we are going to evaluate you for treatment, but then never put you in a situation where you're going to be able to access the type of treatment that you need. We may give you something. But given the level of things that you can access, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be enough to, to, to render uh, like that treatment a success. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Kim Moser, has she's sponsored a lot of mental health bills in the past, so she has filed an amendment to make sure that DJJ has at least, you know, one provider that they contract with to make that a requirement. Um, but, you know, we'll we'll see if that amendment goes anywhere in testifying um about this bill um there was a reverend that testified kent gilbert and he said there's nothing to suggest that beating a child harder with a bigger stick actually helps them be a better adult and our whole goal is to create better adults um and i think that kind of sums up (laughs) what some of these like harsher punishment bills do you know in incarcerating children for a number of days longer than they might have been otherwise, you know, isn't, isn't going to stop or help any of this. I don't think, I think the confidentiality portion is also troubling. Um, Department of public advocacy attorney, Scott West testified that commercial data brokers collect information from court records. So if you remove that confidentiality piece, once a court record has entered that database, it can remain there for the rest of their life. Um, and I've 
I've seen how difficult it is. It's it's nearly impossible to get something like that removed. I've had clients where information got published that they weren't allowed to publish um, because they were being tried in juvenile court, but they but they turned eighteen, so there was an available jail record for them, even though it was still a juvenile court case, and that information got published somewhere. And I could not get anyone to take that information down. Um, so I, I certainly share those concerns as well. And then also we have to talk about what the bill doesn't do. So the bill fails to include the $45 million requested by um, the Bashir administration for pay raises, for detention center staff, um, better building security, like an what I mean there is like physical security, like perimeter fencing, security posts, things like that to prevent escapes um, and mental health and money for mental health services. House Democrats also wanted independent oversight of juvenile detention centers. That's not in there either. Um, and then state officials also called for banning detention for class B misdemeanors. And as of January, 33 children were detained on class B misdemeanors, which is the lowest class of misdemeanor, um, which that was pretty shocking to me, actually. Um, the number of children that are detained on class B misdemeanors are shocking to you? Yeah. 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 And because I think that, you know, as someone who practiced in Louisville, you you likely wouldn't see that except for contempt issues. So, for example, a child's charged with a Class B misdemeanor, um, maybe some, like, possession of marijuana or, or something like that. And they don't, and they're, in juvenile court, they often get ordered to go to school and let's say they stop going to school, um, the judge could detain them for contempt for not following their court order to go to school. And so I would say like the only kids I would think would be detained on class B misdemeanors were for contempt reasons. Um, but 33 for class B misdemeanors seems like a lot to me. Yeah. Um, a class B misdemeanor would be like a, like a criminal trespass or, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like this bill is very punitive. Um, it has, it, it, it really lacks in terms of treatment and the specific things that were requested by the Bashir administration to deal with um, the staffing issues in these, um, in, in these detention centers uh, and the security issues in these detention centers just wasn't funded at all. So, you know, I guess, like, the only good thing is that it reopens the Louisville Youth Detention Center. Other than that, it seems like it's just not a step in the right direction for, for this issue. I mean, yeah. That's, it, that's the way it seems to me. It, yeah. But it, it also seems difficult to staff another detention center when they're so critically understaffed right now. And to not have, to not provide for money to retain workers, I think, is is maybe the, the greatest failure yeah. of this yeah, bill. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, it's pretty bad that they aren't doing and that. I well, think the, not including funding for building security is, is pretty bad as well, because that seems like something that, um, 
could be supported by everybody. <laughs> yeah, it seems, I mean, and, you know, they're cutting taxes instead. It's it's just a really, it should be a bad narrative, and we'll see if it actually matters yeah. uh, in the fall. Uh, we do have a, a different bill, though. We have House Bill 266, which is uh, being called the Bill of Rights for Incarcerated Children. And this is a Democratic bill that's championed by Katora Heron and Lisa Wilner in the House. And this bill includes the right to quality education and mental health services, as well as a citizen's oversight panel that would monitor how youth are treated from the time they're arrested to the time they're released from juvenile detention facilities. Um, and, and something that I've also seen in kind of the press for this bill is that Representatives Heron and Wilner are also pushing back a little bit on this Republican narrative that the juvenile detention crisis is solely like at the hands of the Bashir administration. Um, and they've framed it as a system-wide failure, which is what it is. And and that's kind of how I've been talking about it as well. It's, it's a failure because of, you know, prior legislation, but the administration deserves a lot of responsibility for things that have happened. And it really is a system-wide failure. And they, I saw a Herald Leader op-ed that they wrote that where they noted that the Department of Juvenile Justice has had six commissioners in seven years and that three separate oversight committees have been created, yet all of this happened under their watch as well. Um, so the this certainly started uh, before Bashir was ever elected. I saw a new commissioner every year that I was working in this field um, and there was never any kind of consistency or stability and there were always staffing issues and there were warnings about them for a long time. Um, when Janiya McMillan died in a juvenile justice facility in 2017, there was a report and the recommendation, there were all kinds of recommendations from a consulting firm um, and all of those things have, have only seemed to have gotten worse since then. Finally, um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, since we last talked about this, there's also been a whistleblower retaliation suit filed by former DJJ staff, two nurses who say they witnessed inhumane and dangerous mistreatment of youth and stomach-turning abuse. They cited... 24-hour lockdowns and a specific incident where a girl, um, a 17-year-old girl who was detained, her condition was deteriorating after extended periods and lockdown, and the facility's administration and its security staff allegedly harassed the medical staff for wanting to give her proper health care and safe living conditions. Um, they say that they were bullied, harassed, and cursed after they started reporting mistreatment of the youth just some of that mistreatment that they allege they say that meals were withheld if like one single youth misbehaved they would withhold meals from them necessary prescription medications were withheld children were hit in the face by staff um, and then also because of the understaffing they didn't have enough people to staff the floors so children have had to be kept in 24-hour lockdown so they they don't get to leave their rooms or cells anymore and they so they 
are spending all of this time in isolation. Their meals are brought to their rooms now. Um, and so all of these incidents are, are the things that led to um, the riots that have occurred. Um, one of the quotes from the nurses, it, she said that emotionally troubled and at-risk youth were frequently locked down 24 hours a day, not fed, not provided counseling or treatment, denied education, religious services, and programming, and often kept in unsanitary and barely livable conditions. Plaintiff Nina Burton said, we're causing long-term mental health issues in all of these kids who are locked up. This is something, this isn't something they're going to get over as soon as they finally get out. This is going to cause long-term trauma. This is going to cause problems for all of us down the road. Um, and I think that's right. Uh, 24 hours a day in, in isolation uh, can certainly do that. It's not good for anybody. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing this to our attention because, I mean, we, I think we've been, you know, people have been phrasing or thinking about this juvenile justice issue as just, like, youth run amok uh, of, like, just, you know, these kids, they're just so wild and out of control these days. But, I mean, you know, if you were on lockdown 24 hours a day, people wouldn't give you food because somebody else acted up and you had needed prescription medication that you weren't getting because it was being withheld from you for, right. I mean, for any reason, right? It doesn't matter what it is. If it's needed prescription medication, like that would, I mean, I can't really fathom a time when I would want to riot, but if there was one, that would probably be it. You know, that, that's, that's kind of how, how I feel about it. Uh, yeah, and, so, so, you and know, seeing but, some, some, allegations about the things that led up to staff getting assaulted yeah. a riot at the facility it begins to make even more sense yeah. and, and be even more plausible that that's why that would happen yeah you hear about that you hear about the, the staff being assaulted and the, you know there's no excuse for it but then you know you hear that you know they're also hitting the kids in the face no excuse for that either uh and that is that is, you know, something that could certainly lead to, um, lead to, lead to, you know, staff getting assaulted later. Uh, it, it does. I mean, all of it comes down to understaffing, poor leadership, leadership that isn't like it's just it's impossible to establish any sort of continuity there. And it is like it is just like these cascading failures, like what Katura Heron and Lisa Wilner were talking about, um, and HB three, the the bill that Kevin Bratcher filed does not seem in any way to address that at all and, and is likely the bill <laughs> that will. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it will likely, you know, detain more children in these facilities where they're already allegedly being mistreated and that are already understaffed. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe this lawsuit will, will cause the change that's needed. Sometimes it does require a lawsuit to, to kick things into gear. We, we will see, but yeah, um, thank you for bringing all this stuff about juvenile justice. It, it, just like we feared, it seems like it's going to get worse under the legislative changes that are underway. But we'll continue to track them as they make their way through the legislature, just like we're going to keep tracking SB 150 as it moves to the House. Um, yeah, and we'll continue tracking the abortion lawsuit, too, as it goes back to Jefferson Circuit Court uh, for a ruling on the merits. That's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Rebecca Blankenship. Rebecca Blankenship is the first openly trans elected official in Kentucky, winning election to the Berea School Board in 2022. 
But she is also much more than that. She's serving on the Kentucky Democratic Party State Central Executive Committee. She's Colonel Pamela Stevenson's communications director for her attorney general campaign. And she's the executive director of Band Conversion Therapy Kentucky. So she is a woman who wears many hats. And so we're really excited to talk to her about her vision for Kentucky. So Rebecca Blankenship, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled that you're here. So, I mean, earlier in, I don't know, earlier in the year when we first started talking about having you on, you know, you were the main focus of a lot of, of stories about trans folks in Kentucky with right after your election. And, you know, I would I think it's fair to say that your story and especially how it was talked about was like an inspiring thing. It inspired a lot of hope for me, especially uh, about how, you know, maybe we're making progress towards better inclusion of trans folks in our state's politics and government. But the session has kicked into gear, and I have to say it's been pretty much nothing but terrible news for people who hope for equality for trans people. So just first of all, I mean, as a trans person, you know, how have you been doing kind of in the wake of everything that's happened so far in the 2023 session? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It's kind of hard. I think um, everybody hates to see progress reversed. And in particular, what we're seeing this year is attacks on kids, um, which is perhaps unprecedented in the history of Kentucky. You know, there have been times that there were pushbacks against LGBT people, um, 2002 being the worst. um, And that was hitting marriage equality, right? But this time, they're going straight for children. And I think that that really reveals uh, the extent of the moral panic that's happening um, about the, the visibility of trans people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with the role that you have, you're someone who talks to a lot of people across the political spectrum in Frankfurt. And, you know, have you been able to have any conversations with Republicans or conservative people about the focus on trans folks this session? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jasmine, I have. And, you know, there was a comment that Senator Carroll made on February 9th in the Senate Education Committee that was widely mocked, was he voted yes in favor of a bill that would uh, permit teachers to misgender students and would require um, schools to divulge to parents whether their children were changing their names and pronouns. He said that he felt this is really not about hate. He said, I know trans people, I care about trans people, and I I do not um, view this bill as something that is hateful in nature. Now, what's interesting about that is that I actually lived on the same street as Danny Carroll for many years. His son and I um, played Final Fantasy IX together on PlayStation <laughs> in the upstairs of Danny Carroll's house. Um, and I, I actually do. I believe him. Um, I believe him when he says that there are people that I care about. Um, and I, this, that's not what this is about. I think that people are having, experiencing a genuine state of panic at the idea of losing control of, uh, of, of their children's lives and of losing touch with their children of not knowing what's going on. Um, and that, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but that trans people, for whatever reason, are becoming kind of the 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 locus of the emotional intensity that surrounds these kinds of issues, where social progress and changes 
are being viewed as really scary. Um, and I, you know, when Danny Carroll says, I don't hate trans people, but I really think that parents need to, to have more control. I believe him. That's really interesting. I, you know, it's really clear eyed, I think. Um, and you know, if, if I were in your position, I probably wouldn't see things as gracefully, uh, as you would. Um, and yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's a really interesting response to that. And, and I guess it does kind of lead to the next question, which is, you know, panics occur when people feel like they're losing control. And I guess people feel like there has been, I mean, people who are not inclined to support trans rights probably feel like there's been progress on trans rights being made across the country and across the state. Um, and, and so I guess I'm really curious about your kind of perspective on the current state of affairs and also how you feel things are going to move in the near future. I guess, you know, this panic is occurring and it feels terrible for all of us who are even just like supportive of, of trans rights. As a trans person, it's got to feel a million times worse. But, you know, like you just shared, maybe it's because of progress that's being made. So what is our current state? Where do you feel like we're going? What, what is the future that you see in, in the near term in terms of in terms of this issue? You know, it's um, it's a great question, and I wanna I wanna respond. You said that it's it's it would be difficult to view it this gracefully. I'm not sure that I view it gracefully. I'm just trying to <laughs> give empathy because I I you know I can't get any bills through if I assume that everybody I'm working with is evil, and certainly mm-hmm. if I go and tell them that they are, that's probably the end of the conversation. But Uh, And so I really try. I just assume, you know, they're not evil. So what are they? (laughs) And, um, and the answer I think is that they're very scared. Um, So, and that they, 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 and and they're concerned and some, some of this is legitimate and some of it is exploited by radicals who want them to feel that way in order to pass, you know, bills that bring us back to the 1940s. Right. Um, uh, But so what, uh, in response to your question about where I see Kentucky going, I think that we're at a crossroads. Right. Where, uh, you know, now the culture wars have casualties where the things that have been, you know, up until now confined to the Internet and the newspaper and have been objects of discussion and have been, oh, well, you know, it's been very abstract and, and, and discursive is now becoming something that has reached a, a level of emotive intensity that people are able to be blind to the effects of what they are doing okay and so when somebody um you know is is not receptive to an argument that what that the legislation that they're passing is going to kill somebody or something like this i don't think it's because of indifference to that i think it's because um they're what's motivating them is so different is so you know that their their mind is so focused on other things that really you know if we can talk about if we can meet them where they are and talk with them on their terms then we can have a much more productive conversation before we move off this subject i do kind of want to follow up on that and and you know i i have a lot of these conversations as well uh and and you know as somebody who is not trans having these conversations is a little illuminating but also like it's hard to make any progress because i really do feel like it is only through having relationships with the effective community or maybe that's the most effective way to make progress on this issue but at that same time these bills are so brutal and that the conversations are so 
I mean, just awful. Like, the things that are happening here, that it just, like, it doesn't seem fair to kind of, like, ask trans people to meet these people where they are. And, and that's what I mean when I say you're acting gracefully, is because you're you're able to do it. You know, you're, you're even able to do it. Um, and, and I am just kind of curious, like, how, how do we make, uh, you know, how do we make progress on this? I mean, I, I assume you're going to keep having these conversations. I'm going to keep having these conversations. Like, it, do we do we need trans people to, to to do this, or is there a way that we can like do this without like further bothering them uh, with the, with this all of this that that's kind of going on? Well, I'll tell you. I think it comes down to a numbers game. Trans people are what between zero point six and one percent of the population of Kentucky, which is not enough. Um, to really be effective at changing hearts and minds. There are a few places in the state where trans people exist in any kind of geographical density, which makes organizing an intrinsically difficult trans, you know, idea. Um, the, um, we desperately need every ally that we can get. Um, I don't think that, you know, I'm not here to, to tell other people how to feel. Um, but I think, uh, I think that, everything that people bring to this is valid insofar as, uh, as people are, are making a genuine effort to understand one another. And I really do think that um, I don't want to absolve the opposition of their responsibility to do it um, because Lord knows they give us some more empathy. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we do want to talk about the other things that you do as well, and you're working on a lot of different stuff this year. And so uh, talk to us about your job with Colonel Stevenson and her race for attorney general. Um, how have the few first few months of the campaign gone from a staff perspective? And, you know, do you think that this is a competitive race in the fall? I think it's more than competitive. I think it's it's one of the most winnable races that we're going to see in 2023. Um, you know, I, I don't have to tell you all, you all have met Pam, and you know that she is incredible. What she brings um, to this is not only a wealth of passion, but also experience. You know, she has 39 years of legal experience at the local, federal, state, and international levels. I mean, this is somebody who has gone to war zones in countries that were committing genocides and looked people in the eyes who didn't share even basic principles of human rights with her and, and got them to behave responsibly and mitigated harm, that person is more than qualified. Somebody who's run military bases, le you know, legal operations and things like this, more than qualified um, to be Kentucky's attorney general and top prosecutor. Um, and her record in the legislature, I think, shows that she is enormously committed to all the people of Kentucky. And as she likes to put it um, in, a, in a, a Christian language, is the least of these, right? She wants to, to stand up for all of the vulnerable um, and make sure that, that people from seniors to the poor, to working people, to people of color, to LGBT people are all represented um, in, the, in the Kentucky government, have their rights protected. Um, but above all, what she's running to do is restore balance to Kentucky's government. Because right now, everything's in control of one party who's behaving ruthlessly because there are no checks on them. Um, the governor has no effective veto power in this state. Um, and, uh, and Pam can be the check. Um, on that legislature that is running roughshod over all of our rights. So I, I'm working with Pam because I believe in her in a major way. Um, and I, I hope that that 
comes through in my voice that my my friend is somebody who I really think is going to save Kentucky. Um, and from the perspective of winnability, my gosh, if she if the story that she tells and the experience that she brings are not enough, I just don't know what is. But I know that she is the pinnacle of excellence that we could ask for in this race. Yeah, that's. That's probably the most impassioned speech I've I heard given about uh, Pam Stevenson running for attorney general besides from Pam herself. And I think she deserves it. Uh, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think way too many people are, are writing this race off already. I think Pam is a really special candidate. I think that she is the type of candidate we haven't seen run statewide in uh, for, for one of these state elected uh, you know, offices in a long time, if ever. Um, so I am I'm really excited to see what she's going to do. And, and she's put together a great staff. You know, you're on it. And, uh, you know, our, our friend Beth, who's been on the show, is on it. Stefan, who's been on the show, has been on, on it. And, you know, those are some great folks that are working on this race now. So we are we're excited about that race for sure. So I'm looking forward to how, how that race develops uh, and we'll be checking in with you about it. So uh, you're not just doing that, though. You're not just, you know. Uh, submitting testimony against Senate Bill 150, and you're not just working as uh, Colonel Pam Stevenson's, uh, you know, communications person. Uh, you, you know, for the past several years, you've been working on the issue of conversion therapy. You know, we have we saw a lot of progress in like some blue states, some states with uh, Democratic legislatures uh, in the in the past like five or six years on this issues, and, and but conservative states, with the exception of Utah, for whatever reason. Um, have not made a lot of, of statewide progress on this issue. So from, you know, the there is a bill, HB 162, and we talked a little earlier about how uh, you, you didn't feel like that bill had much prospects. But talk to us a little bit about ban conversion therapy and, and what you guys are working on and how you're approaching this legislative session this year. Yeah, you know, the approach is more important than the bill in some ways. Conversion therapy is an incredibly unique topic in that it has the ability to reframe the conversation around LGBT rights from one of sexual morality to one of kids' lives. And I think that every conversation that we have that's about that is one that is moving the needle away from just the, the ideological mindset that kind of defined this for the last 20 years of either, well, gay people are fine or gay people are not fine. That's not really the question that we're asking when it comes to policymaking. So Utah is actually a perfect example of the contradiction here in this what in this legislative session, okay, the state of Utah has passed a ban on conversion therapy and a pan, ban on gender affirming health care. The same people that voted for a ban on gender affirming health care are stepping up to say conversion therapy needs to end. Now, that's not the goal here in Kentucky. We're not we're not in any way saying yes, okay, fine, ban gender affirming health care. That's it. No. What we're saying is that that the conversation can be different than it is. Utah is proof of that concept. Um, and so have been in several other states, you know, in which uh, in which Republican representatives or maybe it would be more accurate to say socially conservative representatives who would not have voted um, for what they would consider an LGBT bill are voting to ban conversion therapy. Um, so that's our big project is culture change, is reframing the conversation around these issues um, and engaging with people in a much more positive way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know, that movement has had a lot of bipartisan support in the past and Republicans are starting to come around on certain mental health things, too. Um, so I, I can see why that one um, has has been a little different than some other LGBTQ issues. 
Um, one other thing we wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned this earlier, how it is hard to organize when you, you know, only have a, a more dense population of trans people in a couple areas in the state. Um, but you actually live in a more rural area of the state and have managed to become a community leader and an elected official, uh, despite going against many stereotypes. And we hear a lot that people fear putting themselves out there in that way. So what would you say to someone who's considering running for office, uh, but was afraid of the potential repercussions in their community? Yeah, I mean, I would say to anybody that's afraid that they need to not be focused on the differences between people. They need to be focused on what brings people together. Um, and that's what I did in my race. You know, I, I I didn't go out and talk about how, not that I was secretive about my identity, far from it. I, you know, spoke about it at a city council forum in the newspaper. I've been a public, you know, a pretty public person um, for a long time, I guess. Um, but... Uh, but I went out there and I talked about the things that I knew that everybody shared in terms of values. I talked to, to parents about what they needed from the school system. They said that they needed transparency and communication. I talked to teachers about what they needed. They said that they needed pay raises. You know, I, I, I talked to, to people who were thinking about the welfare of students and they said, well, students need more vocational education. And so that's what I ran on. Um, was the things that I thought that we needed and frankly that my own children needed um, as part of the school system uh, in order to see their teachers retained and to to have a clearer idea of what programs were available and going on at the school as as a parent myself and um and to make sure that that my kids who are not college bound are going to have good opportunities um so you know i it, it might have been a different campaign if it had been defined um by you know my uh my differences from other people um but frankly, and this is the most amazing part to me, is nobody's even bothered me once I've gotten elected. You know, there's one person in the whole town, and Berea is not what you would call a liberal town. It went 60-40 Republican in the mm -hmm. magistrate's race in the southern part of the county. Um, and all of our uh, legislators are Republicans, although there is gerrymandering. But nobody has bothered me except for one person, and it's exactly the person you would guess if you were going to make a list of people who were going to bother you. So the point of the story <laughs> is that the, the possibilities are so huge, right? Is that, you know, the if, if you decide that that isn't going to define you, then perhaps it won't. It certainly hasn't for me. Um, you know, I've gotten a lot more emails complaining about school closures than I have about my identity. Yeah, you know, I, I live in, in the Highlands in Louisville, and it's like, the, you know, the most Democratic area in the whole city. And I'm pretty sure our Metro Council person and our school board person have way more than one person bothering them. So, you know, that is uh, definitely a credit to uh, a credit to, I, guess, I think, both you and the community that you live in. So That's awesome. Right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for spending this time with us and, and talking to us about these issues that are so important and all the things that you're working on this year. If people want to connect with you about any of the things we've listed, you know, band conversion therapy, uh, they're really pumped about, uh, you know, Colonel Stevenson running for attorney general, or, you know, they want to get involved in organizing around trans issues. How can, how can they get in contact with you? 
Look, so the best thing that you can do at this point in time on either Colonel Stevenson's campaign or in the fight against anti-LGBT legislation is follow those two pages on Facebook for Band Conversion Therapy Kentucky or Colonel Pam Stevenson for AG or Twitter or Instagram, whatever you like. But what we're really trying to do is mobilize people across the Commonwealth because Kentucky changes when people come together. Our communities become something new when people are knitted together. And I think that that's what makes Colonel Stevenson's campaign um, so special, uh, as well as this movement that we're for, seeing form to protect Kentucky's kids. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You all were awesome. Thank you. Jasmine, how can people uh, hear more, find out more about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You could do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network and the Ford Kentucky network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>